Have you ever asked the, uh, thought about, this is awkward questions you probably shouldn't ask if you're a follower of Jesus, but why do we sit in church and listen to preaching? <laughs> do you ever ask that question? I do all the time. <laughs> Apart from the fact that if you come here, usually Mark is just sensational, so he's a tough act to follow. Five dollars later on. Um, I was, th- you know, serious question, why do we sit and we listen to preaching? I think the answer for me is quite simple, and the answer is because God is real. God is real. And when we come to His Word, we learn more about who He is because His character and His nature never change. And so we're always in this process of learning who God is and how He relates to us as people. The second reason is, is the Bible is full of stories of real people. And human nature also doesn't change unless God intervenes and does something. So when we come to stories in the Bible, especially the historical stories that are about real people, there's some really interesting things for us to learn. Um, So the story we're going to look at this morning is Hannah. It's a well-known story. It's about a woman who goes to church. Basically, she goes to church. She's desperate for a child. She prays and God answers her prayer. I want to say this morning that if you're in a situation of struggling with infertility, you are in safe hands today. I know what that's like. And Mother's Day can be the most painful day to be in church. So I want to say to all of you, we're going to look at this story, but it's actually not a story just about a woman who was struggling to have a child. This is a much bigger human story that today I'm going to walk through. And, uh, and hopefully then when you go back and read the story of Samuel for yourself, you'll see how rich these stories are. So uh, let's get stuck into it. It starts in uh, 1 Samuel, and if you'd like to open up your app or your um, iPad or open up your Bible and follow along, it'll also be on the screen here. We're going to look at the story of, um, of Hannah. So it starts in 1 Samuel 1 with these words. There was a certain man from Ramatham, a Zophite from the country of Ephraim. Now here's a fun thing to do. Get, to, get Google out while you're reading the Bible. Because these words were originally written in Hebrew and we don't always get what's meant uh, at the first glance. So if you look up Ramatham on Google, you'll find out that one of the translations, one of the meanings of this place is called Honeycomb. How cool is that? I live in Honeycomb. Um, And they were going off to a religious festival and they were going to a place called Shiloh. And if you look up the word Shiloh, you'll find out that its translation is Pleasantville. Isn't that nice? So a family went from Honeycomb to Pleasantville for a religious festival. Now, does that not sound like a TV drama to you? That's gorgeous, like Cadbury chocolate ad. Um, Honeycomb to Pleasantville. Now, you're all very, very smart people and you've watched enough TV and movies to know that that's just too good to be true right there. So this is going to be a story that's going to go deeper than just what's at the surface level which is why this is an incredibly fascinating story. We go on in the passage of the Bible and, and we, meet, we start meeting some people. Already there is trouble in paradise. And again, if you're a Hebrew person reading these historical accounts, as soon as two people are mentioned, you'll start to go, oh, all is not well here. All is not what it seems. So the first two people we meet are Hophni and Phineas. There's some great names for your sons, women. Hophni and Phineas. Now these boys were, these men, were uh, sons of the high priest. So in Shiloh, where the family were going for this festival, was the place where God was present. This is in the Old Testament. Jesus hadn't come yet. And so if you wanted to be in the presence of God, you needed to go to Shiloh where the temple of God was. 
And there is where you would meet with God. And so the priests were very important. The role of the priest was to represent God to the people. They were the leaders in the community. There was no king. There was just the priests and the people. They, were, they dispensed judgment. They helped the people. They were make, there to make life good for the people. Now, Hophni and Phineas were doing everything opposite. These guys were like the playboys of the Western world. When you read further in the account, it's quite shocking. Can you imagine this morning rolling up to Elevate Church and seeing the leaders of the church out there propositioning women? Oh my goodness, that's what Hophni and Phineas were doing, propositioning women at the front of the church. There was uh, uh, drinking going on, and so it was not uncommon to see drunk people rolling around in church. Oh my goodness. It was also, uh, these guys were ripping off the people by taking the very best of what they bought. Um, and, and you can read on. And so, you know, they were doing everything opposite uh, to helping the people. So already we have uh, trouble in paradise with Hophni and Phineas. I want to say that greed and sex and power are great temptations. And human nature doesn't change. There's a reason why Hophni and Phineas get mentioned fairly early on in this story. And if you go back to the book of Judges, the last line in the book of Judges, which immediately precedes the story, says this. Everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. Everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. Now that sounds wonderful. We love that, don't we? We love living in a time where you can do whatever feels good as long as you don't hurt anyone else. You know that, don't you? But it's not true. Because when everyone does what is right in their own eyes, someone always pays a price for that. And so this is a story about people who were trapped in a culture that said, it's okay to do what is right in your own eyes. Human nature does not change unless God intervenes and does something. See, God is not a God who's uh, mean and vindictive and says, you must do what I say you must do. When He gives us instructions about how to live, it's because He knows about human nature. And He knows that left to our own devices, we will do what is right in our own eyes and someone will pay for that. And something more, and bad, more badly than others. And so these are people, I have, you know, you get to have a sense of compassion. It's like a mirror. When you start looking in the Word of God and you're examining the lives of other people, it's like a mirror going up to our own lives saying, so how am I doing? Am I living as though everything, I'm doing everything in my own eyes or am I considering of others? And the other thing that I'm learning more and more as I read about the stories of people in the Word of God, that I'm beginning to realise how much we are trapped in culture. What is around us shapes our worldview. And even when we're Christians, we can get caught up in the world culture where we're thinking and just with what we see because we get used to living in a world where everyone does what is right in their own eyes. And so that's why this is actually, I think this morning, a message of freedom. Because in God, we find out um, how to live. The next character in the story is uh, the sister wife. See, I told you this is a TV drama. Uh, her name's um, Penina. Uh, she's one of the uh, real wives of Pleasantville. I thought if I was going to be really creative with this, <laughs> this message, we could talk about the real wives of Pleasantville. Have you ever watched those TV shows? Oh, my goodness. Talk about people trapped in culture, having huge compassion for people living in, in this cultural bubble. It's, it's bizarre to me. But anyway... Penina was also trapped in culture. 
So here is a woman who was a second wife. We get in the story that she wasn't loved by her husband, Elkanah. She was really just a baby maker. Her value came in the fact that she was able to have children. And in that time and in that place, your identity as a woman was totally dependent on your ability to bear children. And so trapped in this culture, of course, any other wife was then a rival. A rival for the affection of your husband and a rival for a place that you know, gave her dignity and worth and value. And so while she, it provoked uh, Hannah, who's the heroine of the story, she's also a woman who was trapped. She, did, she, she wasn't able to see that perhaps there was another way to live. She made the choice to turn Hannah into a rival. She could have made other choices, but for whatever reason, she wasn't able to see that and make a different choice. We also meet then in the story uh, Hannah, who is the heroine. But when we first meet her, she too is trapped in culture because like Penina, her value as a woman was dependent on her, her ability to bear a child. And the story says that year after year after year after year, she was unable to bear a child. And so she became trapped in depression and desperation and disappointment. And if you want to hear a great message about that, you can listen to last week's podcast from Mark about disappointment. But she was trapped in that. And we get that because every year this family would go from Honeycomb to Pleasantville. They would sit at the religious festival and Hannah would be weeping. Now, I know what that's like. I used to come to church on Mother's Day for years and I would sit here and weep and weep because why couldn't I have a child? So I get the pathos, I get the trapped feeling, like you, you, you can't control this. No matter what she did, she could not control this situation. Interestingly, God gets named here too as the bad guy because two times in this passage, it says God closed her womb. Often when there's uh, women who can't have children in the Bible, there's an, there's an indication that maybe they had sinned or they were doing something wrong. But in this case, it's very clear. It's so clear it gets mentioned twice in a row. God closed her womb. Now, when you see something like that in the Bible, and especially when it's mentioned two or three times, you know that God is up to something. There is more to this than an individual woman's story. This is a God story, and it's going to be bigger and broader. So stay tuned. But the question hanging at the moment is this. Is God mean and vindictive? Why would he do this to a woman? So we're going to find out the answer. Then we meet Elkanah, who's the husband. Now, he's a really interesting guy. Now, remember, everyone in this story is doing what is right in their own eyes. But when you meet him in the story, when you read about him, he sounds like the ideal husband. You know, guys, you want to get your black book out. You want to know how to be a good husband? You follow this guy. Um, He is a good man. He's generous. He's considerate. He loves his wives. He's a prosperous man. And you get that because he's able to take his family to Pleasantville and he's able to offer sacrifice and he's able to give portions to his wives and his children. So he's a generous man, except this. He too was trapped in the culture of his time. He didn't actually have to have a second wife. That was never God's intention. Now, there are, there are places in the, in, the, in the Bible where God allows certain things to happen. But ideally speaking, he didn't actually need to have a second wife. And so you begin to ask questions about this man. Was he so trapped in what it meant to be a man that he had to go get himself another wife because he couldn't have children and heirs? And for a man 
to be successful in these days, you needed to be a man, you needed to be able to produce children and heirs. You didn't have a future. In Hebrew terms, there was no future for if you had no children. Your name could not be carried on if you had no children. Now you imagine some of the, the huge weight of that cultural expectation. And think about some of the cultural expectations that we live with about what it means to be a man and what it needs to be a woman. So you can't criticise these people in the scripture when we start thinking about ourselves in these ways. The other thing about Elkanah is he did nothing to foster peace in his own household. So every year, Peninnah would have a go at Hannah and nag and nag and, and make her so sad because she couldn't bear children. And, and Elkanah just, is a, just doesn't, just, just, he does nothing. He didn't man up and deal with his own family and he ought to have. And then the last thing, and I used to, I used to, I've read this story for years and I always thought he was such a caring man, you know. Hannah, why are you crying? Why are you crying, darling? I've given you all this food. Aren't I worth more to you than 10 sons? Guys, don't write that down as a one line to say to your wife. That's like the worst thing you could say to your wife. <laughs> what he should have said is, you are worth more to me than 10 sons. And he should have said that because the reality for Hannah was, if Elkanah died, she was left with absolutely nothing. She would have been homeless, penniless, destitute because she had no children. Therefore, she would not have been able to inherit any of the estate. From a very practical reason, that was just a really thoughtless thing to say. <laughs> so men, don't ever say that to your wife. You are more, Neil, I am more, more worth more to you than 10 sons. <laughs> yeah, you bet. <laughs> All right. So, um, and, and you know, and this, this, this crying of Hannah's, it goes on year after year after year, and, and Elkanah didn't get it. He still kept saying, aren't I worth more to you than, you know, this guy's got an ego the size of... Texas. All right. So, but here we get to the action. So in, um, in 1 Samuel 9, we get to the action. This is the really cool part of the story. In verse 9, let me just flip down to the... Once when they had finished eating, so this is one of those years when, they, when they're at, uh, eating and drinking in the temple, Hannah stood up. Now Eli the priest was sitting on his chair. This is an action point here. And we get to meet Eli, who is the chief priest. Now, the role of the chief priest was to be at the temple. He was the one who was with the presence of God all the time. And there's something really important that you may have missed if you've read that story. First of all, that Hannah gets up. And I think that this is the moment where Hannah, something happens and she says, I'm done with the crying. I am done with the desperation. No one else but God can help me. No one can solve this problem but God. She becomes the righteous woman, the good woman, the wise woman of the story. Now in contrast, we've got Eli who's the chief priest and he is sitting down. If you know anything about chief priests, they should have been standing up. Why was Eli sitting down? Well, because he was sad and disappointed as well. His two sons were a disgrace. And he did nothing about it. In fact, we find out later on that God says to him, you should have done something about your sons and you chose not to. And his sons end up being killed later on 
because they were bringing disrespect to the Name of God and the presence of God, disregard to the presence of God. They were not serving the people, they were ripping everybody off. Eli did nothing about that. And Eli was looking around and he could see that everyone was living and doing what was right in their own eyes. This was not the way it was meant to be. This was not Pleasantville as God had intended it to be. See, the reason those towns got their name was because when God gave the promised land to the people of Israel, this was going to be the best place to live. The people of Israel were blessed to be a blessing so the whole world would know that God is real and that God is present and that God is love and that only He can intervene human character because without Him, we'll always do what is right in our own eyes and someone will pay for that. So Eli is sitting down because he has given up on God and he's given up on people. Now this is really important for us as followers of Jesus to know because now since Jesus has come, he lived and died and rose again and he left us with his Holy Spirit. Where is the presence of God now? Is it here in church? Yes, but where does the presence of God live? It lives in his people. I should say, He lives in His people. If we are followers of Jesus, we have the presence of God in us, with us, all day, every day, all the time. All the time. And yet, like Eli, it's possible for us to take the presence of God for granted and to get sad and depressed and disappointed and discouraged and all these things when we look around and life is not turning out the way we want it to turn out. So we can criticise Eli and think, well, Eli was taking the presence of God for granted, but sometimes so can we. We had a prayer day a couple of weeks ago where someone was praying. We were praying for all of our churches in our family of churches. In fact, we were praying for everybody because we just think that all of the churches, (laughs) we want to be praying for everyone. But this prayer was about the presence of God needing to be seen much more clearly in His people in our day and our time. And it was like, instead of holding the presence of God inside us, the presence of God needs to be seen not just from behind us, but all the way through our lives. Now you and I, if we're followers of Jesus, can live with the presence of God all the time. This is not a time to be sitting down on our faith. This is a time to be standing up and saying, I'm a follower of Jesus. He is with me. He is with me. No matter what is going on, no matter what my circumstances, He is with me and He will never let me go. That's sensational news. I think we need to give... He's with us. But Eli, at this point in the story, is sitting down and he doesn't even notice Hannah going into the temple. Now... I think this idea of Hannah getting up has to do with the fact that she hit rock bottom. Human nature doesn't change. Sometimes and often, actually, we need to get to the end of our rope. We need to get to the end of our own resources in order to realise we cannot control the world. Actually, we can't do what is right in our own eyes. We all get to a point, there are situations and circumstances in life where God will allow us to go so that we get to the end of our own resources. And when we get to the end of ourselves, that's when God's able to intervene. There is story after story after story in the Bible of people who get to the end of their rope. Now we have a choice. We can wait till we get to the end of our rope 
or we can wake up quicker. We don't have to get there. But then there is the place in the, in the Beatitudes in Matthew where Jesus says, you know, when you find you're at the end of yourself, it's okay because the less of you, the more room there is for God. The more room there is for God to come in and put things right in our lives. So Hannah does that. The next key verse I want to point to is in verse 18. So there's this interaction, and you can go and read the story later on, but there's this interaction between God and Hannah where Hannah prays and and Eli basically gives her a blessing. But understand that Eli is actually not a righteous person in this story. He's barely conscious that she's in the temple and he just gives her the rote kind of blessing. It's later on that Eli will realise what's going on. But at this point, there's really not a lot there. But the, the next key verse, a verse that's fascinated me for years and years is in verse 18, where we read that Hannah went away and her face was no longer downcast. And I have asked my, I've asked God this question for years. What happened? What happened to Hannah? Because her face changed. I thought about calling this sermon the holy facelift. <laughs> holy facelift, Batman. <laughs> How to get a holy facelift. Uh, you go to the temple, pray, and your face changes. You know, how cool would that be? You and I come to church every week. We meet together. The presence of God is here with us, but also in each other, and our face changes. Holy facelift, Batman. See, today, I pray for you a holy facelift moment. Um, Something happened between her and God in the temple. And I think that what happened is that she realised that she was in the presence of God. Somehow God met with her there and it didn't matter that she couldn't have a child. Yeah, it still hurt. Yeah, there was, her life circumstances did not change, but God became everything to her in that moment. She became so full of the experience of the presence of God that she was lifted out of her circumstances and able to keep going on. Now, you and I have that very opportunity all day, every day when we are in Christ. And this morning, if you've never encountered God, we're really praying that you get a holy facelift. <laughs> And that's a matter, simply a matter of putting your trust and your hope in Jesus and meeting with God this morning and saying, yeah, I want that kind of life. And we hope that you do that this morning. Her whole face changed. Now, I'm a desperate, deeply introverted person. And my face will often reflect the fact that I'm thinking. I'm a serious person. But I'm praying that more and more the joy of the Lord would be evident even in my more serious moments because God is present in my life regardless of circumstances and situations. See, see, Hannah goes off and her face is no longer downcast. She's had a a meeting with the presence of God, but her circumstances don't change. She goes home and and there's no record in this. um, There's no record of God saying anything to her in the temple. So she prays and asks God for a son, but there's no record of God saying, yes, Hannah, I'll do what you asked me to do. She got no guarantees. There were no kind of like, you know, blinding moments, thunder, all the rest of it. Nothing changed. But she went home changed because she had faith. 
And I love the way that in the message version, this story ends, well, where are we going to end it today? And Eugene Peterson translates what happens next. That, can we get to that last slide, please? Thank you. Up before dawn, they worshipped God and they returned home to Honeycomb. Elkanah slept with Hannah, his wife. Nothing changed. And God began making the necessary arrangements in response to what she had asked. Isn't that gorgeous? <laughs> Elkanah went home and they, you know, they did their thing. But it was God who made the necessary arrangements in response to what she had asked. I wonder what big things you and I have that we want to ask God for today. What are the big hopes and dreams that you have? Let me turn that question around because as I thought about this message, I wanted it to be a message for everyone today. Not just for mums, but for everyone. I think that we all struggle with infertility in some way, shape or form. To quote Jane Austen, you may this morning be a young man in want of a wife. And a wife is not coming. That's a form of infertility. Because what you long for is not yet here. You may be a young woman in want of a nice husband and he may not be coming. And that can lead to a season of infertility where what you want is not coming. You might have hopes and dreams or expectations or things that you really want, longings in your heart and you can't see them and you can't make them happen. That's a season of infertility. Every time there's an infertility story in the Bible, it's because God wants to intervene and help His people. And Hannah is unlike some of the other stories about infertility is in, in that she doesn't do what is right in her own eyes. She doesn't take steps to solve the problem. In other infertility stories, women go out and get second wives for their husband and say, go and sleep with her and that way you will make this right. But Hannah doesn't do that. She takes her problem to the Lord and the Lord begins making the necessary arrangements in response to what she had asked. I'm going to finish there this morning. But I'm, going to, I'm praying that today we get a holy face lift. <laughs> but that whatever it is that you have on your heart, in this moment, bring it to the Lord. And trust that he will, he, will do, he will make the necessary arrangements in response to what we ask. So Father God, we thank you, first of all, that your presence is with us. We don't have to travel from Honeycomb to Pleasantville to meet with you. You have made our lives into Pleasantville. Despite circumstances around us, you are at, you are at work and at rest and at peace in our lives. And so, Father, we want to first of all thank you. Forgive us, Lord, when we take your presence for granted. Help us to remember that we are like a, a temple where you are with us all the time, perfectly with us. You, you love us more than we can understand and know. And you know everything about us and you know exactly what we need. And you promise to never leave us and never let us go. So first of all, God, we want to say thank you for that. And we, we would be um, a fulfilment of what your promise is for this whole world, that when people encounter us, they will know that there is something more to life, that we can live in freedom. We don't have to be trapped by cultural expectations. We can live in this world, but also live outside of this world 
because you are our home. And Lord, whatever it is that we're carrying today, disappointments, broken dreams, expectations, things that we long for in our heart, you know what they are. And Lord, if it's a season of waiting that you have us in, thank you that you know that and that you will help us today. We bring those things to you. And we thank you that you are the God who will make the necessary arrangements in response to what we're asking for. And Father, I also want to pray for those this morning whose hearts are beating a little bit fast with a, with a prayer saying, I want this kind of life. I want to know that God is real. I invite you in this moment just to say yes to God, to take Him into your life and never be the same again, never alone again, perfectly loved always. Father, we thank you so much for this day. We thank you that we can leave this day with a holy facelift. In Jesus' name, amen.